If you just joined us for the first time um, in a few weeks, um, you're joining us at the end um, of a sort of crescendo of a series, a little mini-series, on the passage that you just saw on the screens. So it's, a pas- it's the passage Exodus 34, and we're sort of recovering from uh, a bit of a cold, so please excuse me if I need to cough or anything at any point. Um, but um, yeah, we've been doing this little series on Exodus 34, verses six to seven, and we're looking through, we're tracking through some key characteristics of God. This isn't just an Exodus. This passage appears many times throughout the Old Testament, and it's sort of an identity declaration from God to his people about who he is. So it's an absolute core text, as you've probably been gathering over the last few weeks. So um, the first um, attribute we looked at was compassionate, and that was uh, Tim. And then Andrew did the slow to anger one. And then David last week was looking at love and faithfulness. And, um, you know, for some reason today, Gareth and I got this passage on, uh, you know, um, the sort of generational sin and all various other really horrible, unpicky topics. I think the sort of thought that we were the ones that like a bit of confrontation. So I don't know where they got that from. Um, but... Um, I love it. I got really stuck in, and we're going to go straight to that elephant in the room, which is the generational sin passage that appears in this core text. So if you want to just turn to it in your Bibles or on your phone, if you've got your Bible, and we can have it up on the screen as well, we're just going to really look at that last passage. We're going to start with this text, because otherwise it's just going to be the elephant in the room, and we're going to be wondering, what is that all about Why, when God has this beautiful, wonderful list of characteristics, does he include this last section? So just hear it once again. He passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation." Now, I hope that's not sitting too comfortably with you. I mean, even by human standards, that is pretty obscene, isn't it? I mean, can you imagine if um, you know, James did something wrong at school? At, at, uh, he's a teacher. What if he sort of um, lost his temper in front of the class and the headmaster called him in and said, um, right, James, um, you know, you're going to be punished for this, but I've also sent word to Lakeside Primary School where Gilbert and Lawrence aren't going to be allowed out for their break time play because of what you've done. I mean, that would just be obscene. And what it says here in the passage is even worse. It says to the third and the fourth generation, God will punish the sins of the parents. Okay? If you haven't got kids, you know, imagine if something happened, your parent was arrested, maybe they were speeding. Um, you know, you may have a parent that likes just to get behind the wheel and just put their foot down. They were speeding and you get a speeding ticket as well. You know, there's a duplication system, so the government think, well, if, if the parent speeds, then we're going we're gonna to pepper the whole family with tickets. I, don't, I wonder how you'd feel about that. It's not something that sits that well, is it, with God, who is a just and fair God. Well, I think there is some good news. I think there are a couple of things that I've delved into and found out that do help to set this passage into context. 
The first one is that there's, there's this amazing contrast in the passage. So if we can get it back up on the screen, you can see quite clearly that God maintains love to thousands. Now, according to where it appears elsewhere in the, in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy and Exodus, this doesn't just mean thousands of people. This means thousands of generations. So the love is to thousands of generations. In contrast, the punishment is to just three or four. Okay, so perhaps that just might have put it into context a little bit. Thousands of generations experience God's love. Just three or four generations experience punishment. Okay, so has that solved it completely yet? Not quite, but maybe it's made it seem a little bit better. It still needs a bit of explaining. The second point um, is worth delving into as well. So when I was looking this up, I'd really recommend the ESV Study Bible um, when, if you're you know, even an amateur scholar like I am of, of uh, the Bible text. This was a very helpful comment I came across there. Human experience confirms that immoral behavior on the part of the parents often results in suffering for their children and grandchildren. This is one of the grievous aspects of sin, that it harms other people beside the sinner himself. But this general principle applies only to those who hate God, i.e. to those who persist in unbelief as enemies of God. The cycle of sin and suffering can be broken through repentance. Now let's just take the first part of that paragraph to begin with. And isn't this our experience? You know, don't you find that in your family there are certain things that are strongholds that rear their head again and again? I wonder what it, what it is in your family. It may be addictions that you see you know, run through generations to generation. Maybe it's fits of rage, um, escapist behaviors, manipulation, uh, cruelty, abuse, financial difficulty, relationship breakdowns, or depression. Each of these things can be themes that reoccur in families, can't they? And they can rip through generations, causing multiple wounds and all sorts of relational breakdown. And even now, you may be sitting here thinking, yeah, you know, even in my family right now, we're going through another bout of difficulty in a certain area. We just can't seem to shake off that particular stronghold. So I think this idea that something happens, there's a punishment, there's a sin that perpetuates three or four generations, I think that is our experience, isn't it? That, you know, even if you think about families that are broken, you know, that will have affected children and even grandchildren as well, where there's grandparents that aren't together anymore. And so some, some people have to have three or four Christmases, don't they, to try to get around all of the relatives. It will affect much more than just the immediate people concerned. Yet the consequences of generational sin are not the same as suffering the penalty of sin. So there's another passage that's helpful here. In, it's in Ezekiel chapter 18. You might want to turn there with me now. And it says this. It's Ezekiel speaking. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? 
The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel. Every one according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. You know, sometimes I think we have this idea, don't we, that there was law in the Old Testament and punishment, and there's grace in the New Testament. It's just not true. The Old Testament is riven, riven through with rivers of grace as well. And what a wonderful invitation there is there in Ezekiel. It's just great news, isn't it? No one is beyond God's forgiveness. And through prayer, generational curses and sins can be removed. There'll be many people here who have testimonies of that being the case, won't there? Just stick up your hand if you have a testimony in your family, you don't need to share it, of a generational sin, something that someone previously has struggled with, and, and there's victory in your family. You've seen victory and you don't feel that like you live under that anymore. Amen. That is amazing. That's over half of us that have that experience. So God can bring healing, restoration, and strength in the exact area where your father or mother or grandparent or you have failed. So some of you, I feel tonight, I've sensed tonight, I've been praying and preparing, you're sort of laboring under that feeling that you can't get beyond the sins of the past. You feel frustrated. Maybe you've messed up recently, just over the last couple of days maybe, in the same way that perhaps your parents did or your, or your grandfather did, and you think, I'm never going to be free of this. And the enemy wants you to think you're still sitting under that sin and that oppression. I want to tell you tonight that God says you're not. Not at all. We, may, we still need to fight the battle. But that curse has been lifted. And if you still feel you do live under that curse, that can be removed through prayer. And we can do that tonight towards the end. There's exciting things in store. Let me give you an example of this. Um, my grandfather um, was known at work as Japanese Jim. And the reason he was called Japanese Jim was quite a sad reason. And that was that he was a Japanese prisoner of war and he never got over it. Um, there was understandable reasons why he found it so difficult to forgive but it was something that defined his life I was just talking to my dad about it last night and um, he was he was you know right until the end um, he was extremely ang angry against the Japanese I mean he wouldn't have anything Japanese in the house um, there's a story my dad told me that someone brought something into the house um, and he just opened the front door and threw it out and shut the door behind. And my dad had to grow up in that environment where there just wasn't this attitude and this culture of forgiveness. And I think there was the odd grudge that was held with different people and family members. And, um, you know, my dad has said himself he found it hard to do forgiveness well um, growing up. But not that long ago... Um, 
he was um, sitting here in this church and there was a sermon about forgiveness and it was an invitation to forgive. And he knew, my dad was sitting there, knew there was somebody that God was telling him he should forgive. Now at that point, he had the choice. He could have stayed in the pattern of the family, the generational curse, the the lack of forgiveness that had been handed down from my grandfather. Or he could have chosen to forgive. But it was a difficult decision because somebody in the basketball club where my dad's very involved had hugely betrayed my dad. He'd not only told lies about my dad, he'd actually written letters anonymously as if they were from someone else and sent them to um, the EBBA, the Basketball Association. Um, And it was very, very painful. My dad was sort of investigated for things that had never happened. They were complete fabrications. And my dad had kept a file of these letters. And um, he knew in this service, he was sitting there, he had this file at home, and he knew that God was saying, you need to forgive this guy for the lies that he's told about you. And straight away, he just said, I knew I just had to. And I said, yes, I will forgive. Now, there's another story about how that led to an amazing healing, but let's stay on the forgiveness. Not only did he do that, he went home, he opened the file one morning, so he made himself some breakfast and a cup of coffee. He opened the file, he opened the back door, and he went into the garden, lit up the chimney, <laughs> and fed all the letters into the chimney, one by one, and drank his cup of coffee. And he tells a good story. I can't get him up here, he's over there. I can't get him up here because he tells a good story, but he's like me, you know, gift of the gab. You don't want both of us up here. But he said that what happened was this sort of smoke appeared, like the Pope. You know, and, and it hung over, he says, it hung over the chimney and then poof, it was gone. So it was like something out of a science fiction type film. But what went with it was the burden of carrying that unforgiveness around. And not only that, you know, I was just so in- encouraged to hear Mike's testimony about sharing his faith. My dad's a Mike as well, and he's been trying to. In- encourage and persuade his best mate Gary, who's also very involved in the basketball club, to forgive another guy that he needs to forgive. And he keeps saying, forgive, Gary, you're carrying it round. Forgive, let it go. So what I'm telling you, the reason I'm telling you that story is that God is in the habit of making a place that was a curse, a place of blessing. Do you know that? That in our place of weakness, he will make it a strength. When there's a place of mourning, he will make it a place of laughter. You know, do we know that the enemy doesn't just go after our weaknesses? He goes after our strengths. And that's sometimes why that curse is there. Because the enemy knows if that person could, could know they could have freedom in that area, they're going to be unstoppable for God. So some of you, you love Jesus and you are going for it, but you are a little bit held back by that fear of the generational sin, of the failures of the past, of your own failures. And I think the enemy, um, the Lord wants to say to us tonight, don't be. That is not an obstacle for you. So, so far, we are saying that God's forgiveness breaks generational sin. And we've just touched on it briefly. We're going to go into it now. The second point is that God's forgiveness is accessed through repentance. 
So if we go back to the passage again, the Exodus 34 passage, and the bit that we're dealing with tonight is verse 7. It says that God maintains love to thousands and forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. So we've got this dilemma. This is another little tricky bit to get our teeth into. Verse 7. The wicked are those who are forgiven, but the guilty are punished. The guilty aren't left unpunished. So who are these two groups of people? The wicked who get forgiven and the guilty who don't. Is it about the extent of the sin? Is, is it that one group of people just sin a little bit and the others sin a lot? Or maybe it's about which commandments they do. So maybe the, the group that get forgiven sort of do the really, the really sort of not very, not very big ones like, you know, they just, just dishonour their parents a little bit. That's no, not that bad, is it? Will tell the odd lie. And then the others, perhaps they sort of do the big ones like murder and committing adultery and things. But it's not that. It's not that at all. Scripture helps us to answer this question. And we can look at one or two other places where this key identity teaching comes in to see what it is about who is forgiven and why. So we're going to go to Joel. And here it comes. And this is good. So Joel chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Can you see the same key text repeated there? So what's the defining factor in who's forgiven and who's not? It's about our reaction to our sin. It's repentance. Now, this is about true repentance, okay? So sometimes if Laurie and Gilbert have a bit of a scuffle, and I'll say, come on, say sorry, you get a sorry. <sighs> or have you ever done that to you know, someone you're in a relationship with or a friend? Have you ever sort of been, no, I'm sorry, but... You know, you kind of feel like you need to say it, but actually it's very, very difficult. Um, Mads um, is fond of saying, a sorry but is a sore bottom. So, <laughs> good one, isn't it? Um, so it's not something we should ever say, is it? If you find yourself saying sorry but, try not to. Try to just have a pause, even if there is some discussion to be had. God's looking for people who are authentic. Not false guilt, not self-hatred, but the kind of reaction to sin that says, do you know, I just despise it when I do that. I really hate my sin. I just wish I wasn't like that. I want to put that aside from me. I want to separate myself from that. I really want to say I'm sorry because I want to put that behind me. <clears throat> That's the kind of repentance that God is looking for. But sometimes we just don't feel sorry, do we? Sometimes in our head, we know we should be sorry for our sin, but we're just not feeling it. Our heart hasn't quite caught up. Why is that the case? I think there's a clue in the Joel passage we just looked at. Return to me with all your heart, God says, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Sometimes we need to actually do something to help us along with feeling sorry for our sin. And that's where fasting can, can come in. Romans 1 verse 18 
says that people, that includes you and me, we suppress the truth by our wickedness. And that means that our very behaviour of doing the wrong thing stops us from realising that we're doing the wrong thing. So the more we keep walking in the wrong thing, the more we're numbing ourselves to the genuine conviction of the Holy Spirit. So we've got to change something if we want to feel genuinely sorry. Um, Some people who are really good at this and know this well, and there's some people in our midst, in our community, who have a very deep knowledge of this, are those who are familiar with AA and other addiction sort of organisations. I'm just going to put up steps one to six right now of the 12 Steps programme. And um, this is what they go through. They go through these steps. They admit that they're powerless over alcohol and their lives have become unmanageable. They hand themselves over to God and turn their wills over to his care, steps two and, um, three, two and three. And then look at step four. They make a searching and fearless moral inventory of themselves. So they actually sit down and go, right, where do I need to improve? Where am I getting this wrong? What have I got that I need to work on? Step five, they admit to God, to themselves, and to another human being the exact nature of their wrongs. Step six, entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. And then they go on to make amends towards people they've wronged. So it's very practical. You know, there's a lot of journaling going on there, and there's also a lot of talking with others and confessing sins. They've really got this confessing of sin to each other nailed. Okay? And we sometimes haven't. You know, there's, a, there's a word tonight that some people are going to bring out into the open tonight some things that have been in the dark for a very long time, things you've been struggling with on your own. And we're not made to struggle with anything as difficult as sin on our own. We're made to do it in community, however hard that is. So in the same way as addicts make, they take this moral inventory of themselves, get a friend and start to take action. We need to admit we have a problem with sin and reorientate ourselves to face that problem and make ourselves uncomfortable sometimes in the solving of it. Now, as a sort of symbol of us making ourselves uncomfortable, I haven't asked them to do this, but I'm going to ask Jamie and James to come out to the front, just stand here at the front, and there's one. (laughs) I'd like... Jamie, I'd like you to do a squat stance. Can you do a squat stance? <laughs> we play basketball with Jamie, so I know you can do one. James, can you do a plank? A plank, yeah. I know you're good at it. Show them how strong they are. Okay, that is awesome. Yeah, knees up a bit. Yeah, nice. Okay. Back straight, Jamie. Back a bit straighter. You know, you know, I said Dad was a basketball coach. He used to make us, if, if we got layups and stuff wrong, you had to put a basketball in each hand and one between your knees and stand against the wall. You're not allowed to do that anymore, but that's how we were taught. Okay, so can you stay there for just a few minutes? Now, <laughs> um, what's going to come up is a passage from Jonah. And I'd really like to invite everybody to join in. The idea is we just make ourselves a tiny bit uncomfortable. You can kneel down like they do in the Anglican church. That was always for making us you know, repentant, wasn't it? Or you can do a squat. So choose. Come on, you guys over there in the music group. Come on. Squat, plank, or kneeling down. Okay? What, would you, what are you going to choose? Ten seconds to make a choice. Stay seated if you like. 
You're right. Jamie, still going. <laughs> okay. Right, the rest of you, the rest of you can join in as well. And what we're going to do... <laughs> he's doing well, isn't he? Jonah 3, 6 to 9 is going to appear on the screen. So if you can see the screen, can you help by, by reading this out? So ju we're just going to stay in this position. That's awesome, Karen. Stay in this position whilst we read this out. Okay, you ready? The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, keep going, by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Give them a clap. That was amazing. I was really impressed there. That's really amazing. Now, the point of that, and there was a point, it wasn't just to embarrass my husband and, and others, but the point of that is that like fasting, doing something like that, making ourselves uncomfortable, it can just help focus our mind on the fact that we are doing something uncomfortable. We are deliberately making ourselves think about our sin in a way that leads to repentance, that leads to forgiveness and reconnection with God. So in that passage we just read in Jonah, where they put on the sackcloth, which is really horrible, itchy stuff, itchy, yakky clothes to make themselves feel uncomfortable, and they, they didn't eat anything, they didn't drink anything, they just together as a body prayed and implored God to forgive them, something amazing happened. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, there it is again, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. You see, in this passage... God's mercy, actually, is so much greater than human beings' mercy. You know, Jonah didn't want God to forgive. He wanted that place to be punished. He wanted the sins of the, of the Father to be visited onto the generations. But God said, no, they have repented, and that is it. It's done. You know, one soul is really important to me, and what they do and what they say matters. I will not revisit punishment onto other generations and onto innocent people. I will forgive. God's nature is to forgive those who ask. I remember a friend at university, I was, I was sharing with him, you know, the gospel one night, and he was like, 
yeah, it sounds great, he said. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to live my whole life the way I want to do it, really selfishly, make loads of money, do whatever I want. And then on my deathbed, I'm just going to go, I'm sorry, God. Um, can you forgive me now? And I was like, well, he would. He would forgive you now. But God, that's not true repentance. True repentance is rending your heart. True repentance is when you really know that you have sinned against God and him alone and that you need to do something about it. God cannot be deceived. But if he did do that, you know, even now, if Stuart did that, God would say, come on in, wouldn't he? You know, he is so merciful, so gracious. Let's not believe the lie that he's not. So does that mean that he forgives only the repentant? You know, does he harbour anger towards those who have not repented? And this is important for us because does that mean that we should only forgive the repentant? You know, if someone's in our life and they've never said sorry for something that they've hurt us in doing, is it okay for us to carry around resentment towards them? Or should we, should we extend forgiveness towards them? And as I was praying about this, the Lord reminded me of the prodigal son. And the prodigal son goes off, you know, takes, takes his, his, his father's money and goes and, and, and you know, really dismisses his dad and, and commits terrible offences against his dad. But even before the son has said sorry, the posture of the father is to stand at the gate in a posture of forgiveness because he, as soon as he sees him coming, he runs. That is a posture of forgiveness, isn't it? Yeah, he wasn't able to extend the forgiveness until the son repented, but his heart was to extend the forgiveness. His heart was ready, wasn't it, for that repentant heart to come back. So tonight's really about God and his forgiveness, not so much about our forgiveness, but I think as a side point, our posture should be that of God's, shouldn't it? It should be to extend forgiveness so that we are ready when that person is ready. So I don't know if anyone's had one of these ever through the door. I'm sure you have. I hate getting these. I really hate it because, um, oh, I think, it's, <laughs> I think it's the other one. Um, I hate getting these because you've got to go to that horrible place with a lay-by with a double yellow on it. And with mean, the kids in the car, and then you've got to like run in, and there's like a million people in a queue, isn't there, to pick up your parcel on a Saturday morning? Saturday morning at nine o'clock, it's just the pits, isn't it? Everyone's in there, no one's brushed their teeth, it's horrible. Um, and um, but it's a, it makes an important point, doesn't it? You've got to go and pick it up if you want to have it. You can't just stay at home with that label waiting. The invitation is there but I don't get my parcel until I go and collect it. So repentance is absolutely crucial to picking up the forgiveness that God has for us. So that's the third and final point now as I come to finish. We've got God's forgiveness breaks generational sin. It's access through repentance. And the third and probably most important point that we are landing at now is this. God's forgiveness is total Now, I've got this theory that um, in the church, we sometimes don't ever cash in the total forgiveness of God. And I think it starts when you're a baby and you get a little bit of water sprinkled on your head, and that's called baptism. Okay, I've got Baptist right here. He knows what I'm talking about. 
If you have a little sprinkling as a baby, perhaps you grow up thinking a little sprinkling of forgiveness is enough. A little toe-dipping of forgiveness is enough. But actually, what God wants to give us is the full immersion of forgiveness. Am I right? Some of you have had it. Some of you may be getting it soon when we have the um, baptisms. And it is so important, isn't it, as an imagery that you go down into the water and you are fully immersed. And that represents all of your sins. Every single thing you have done, will do, and are doing, is covered in the absolutely total, utter, complete, wonderful, glorious, miraculous forgiveness of God. And then you come back up and you try to live in the understanding that that is the case. How hard is it to live in the understanding that you are completely forgiven? Do we find that easy? I don't find that easy at all. I find that really hard. But I think that's exactly what God wants to remind us of tonight. And it's because of Jesus, because of the price that he paid on the cross, because his body was broken, it was paid in full. It was very, very costly to God. And that's sometimes why we can't quite believe it's the case. We think a little sprinkling is all we deserve. But God has gone way, way beyond that, hasn't he? He's done everything. He has forgiven every sin, every single sin. And every sin you'll do tomorrow it is completely and utterly forgiven. He looks sin square in the face. He knows what you've done. You can't hide it from him. And he says, it's all paid for in full. It's absolutely done. It's washed away. In Micah chapter 7, verse 19, it says this, he will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has removed our sins from us. That's how far. We don't ever have to pick them up again. We don't ever have to live with them again. Um, I had a friend, um, We had a lovely childhood friend called Ruth that we used to go swimming with sometimes. And I remember her mum, when we used to go swimming, used to say, keep your shoulders in and you'll stay warm. Keep your shoulders in or you'll get cold. Isn't that true of forgiveness as well? We've got to be fully immersed to stay warm, to stay warm to the love of God, to stay reminded that we are righteous because of Jesus, not because of ourselves, and that therefore we have all the promises of the air. We have all the authority of being a son or a daughter. We can do all things through Christ who gives us strength when we know we are forgiven. So I'm going to invite you now to stand just where you are. And we're just going to... God's going to show up. We had an amazing um, time when we were praying just before the service. And... um, Somebody had this word, and they didn't know where I was going to land tonight at all. They, didn't, they had no idea. But they had this word. They said, I just keep thinking of that song, stirring up deep, deep waters, stirring up deep, deep wells. She said, some people tonight, they want to go in to the water, sort of bit by bit, tentatively. And others are just going to run up and bomb in. Okay, That's what's going to happen now. 
Something's going to change in the spiritual because God wants to meet with you in the water right now. So if you just close your eyes, this is between you and God. We're just going to do some business with God. I just want you to see before you a river. And that river signifies the forgiveness of God. It's a good place. And I just want you to picture where you are in relation to that river. That is the forgiveness of God. Are you at the side watching others? Do you feel like you can walk forward? Do you feel like you can start to put your toes into that water or wade in like Mike did up to his thighs? Do you feel like you could just jump in? Or do you feel like you could swim in, do a sort of breaststroke with your head out of the water like I do? Where do you feel like you you are in relation to the forgiveness of God? And do you feel like you could take a a further step today and get your head right under the water and feel the weightlessness of God's forgiveness, of his deep, rich, limitless, abounding forgiveness? Every single sin is forgiven Everything, even that thing you're hiding now in that corner of your mind and your memory, that's forgiven. Can you let it go into the water? Just let it go. Just release it while you're there in the water. Let it go and you'll see it sink to the bottom of the ocean. be released to be in whatever posture is helpful for you you might want to kneel down you might want to sit you might want to come forward whatever posture is helpful for you to engage with God and to receive the forgiveness to let go of your sin to say God I'm sorry I receive your forgiveness I pick it up now That's good.